Hello, and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this show, we're part history, part travel, and part hiking guide. On this episode, we go to northeastern Nevada. It's an area rich in Old West history where the Pony Express and the Donner Party both passed through. But the trail we travel is no desert adventure, as you might expect in northeastern Nevada. Instead, it traverses a craggy, lake-filled alpine wilderness that rises thousands of feet out of the high desert. On this hike, you might catch a glimpse not only of native bighorn sheep, but also mountain goats and even Himalayan snowcock that were once introduced to the area and thrive there. The hike starts in sagebrush, crosses high mountain passes, and finishes in a massive canyon that some Nevadans say rivals Yosemite Valley. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Ruby Crest Trail in the Ruby Mountains of Nevada. In October 2018, I made the long drive from the Bay Area out to Elko, Nevada, which is way up in northeastern Nevada, pretty far away from just about anything else. My plan was to hike the Ruby Crest Trail in the Ruby Mountains there in four days. The plan was that my dad and my stepbrother would pick me up at the end of the hike and that I would uh, park my car at the beginning of the hike on the southern end at a place called Harrison Pass. They would come and pick me up at the other end in Lamoille Canyon, drive me back to get my car, and then we would drive down to the Ruby Valley, which is on the eastern side of the Ruby Mountains, and we would uh, go camping and fishing for a few days. So that was the plan, but that's not how things went. First, even before I drove out there, I was following the weather and snow started falling. So pretty quickly, I changed my itinerary, and instead of planning to do a through hike from south to north, I decided instead to do an out and back from the north end and go up into Lamoille Canyon, hike up to some of the more appealing lakes in the area, spend a couple days, and then hike back out. And my dad and my stepbrother, Logan, would come out and meet me, and we would go camping and fishing in the Ruby Valley. So I was kind of bummed that I wasn't going to be able to do the trip I wanted to do, but I thought, hey, I'll still make a good trip of it. It'll still be fun backpacking. And I'll still get to go hang out with my dad and my stepbrother. And besides, the most dramatic scenery is there at that north end of the trail anyway. So that was the plan. And I spent a night in Elko in a a hotel and then drove out to Lamoille Canyon the next morning. And when I got to the road that turns off into Lamoille Canyon, I pretty quickly realized this wasn't going to happen. Lamoille Canyon was on fire. There was smoke billowing out of the entrance area of the canyon, and a police car had blocked off the road to turn up toward the canyon. There was a Boy Scout camp that had been there, I think, since the 1920s or 1930s that burned down. It was a pretty devastating fire for the front end of that canyon, ultimately. But for me, what it meant is even my abbreviated plan 
of doing an out and back into the Ruby Mountains wasn't going to happen either. So, with a few days to kill before my dad was going to arrive, I went back to Elko and tried to figure out what to do. First, I went and gambled in the casinos there, lost more money than I wanted to. But one good thing did come out of that. I met a local guy and he told me about an area on the north end of the Ruby Mountains where I could go car camping. And so I did that. And I drove out to a different part of the Ruby Mountains. There were beautiful fall colors in the in the forest there with the aspen trees turning colors. And I had a really enjoyable time doing some day hiking and camping in a regular car campground rather than backpacking. A couple days later, my dad and my stepbrother arrived in Elko. We camped a night uh, on the way and then made our way to the Ruby Valley on the eastern side of the Ruby Mountains after going over Harrison Pass, which is a dirt road that takes you across the southern part of the Ruby Mountains. In any event, the stars weren't aligned for me in October 2018 when I tried to do this hike, but I did fall in love with the area. It's a beautiful high desert area, and the Ruby Mountains are just stark and amazing, just rising way out of the valley there, just huge and imposing and really enticing. I really do hope to go back someday to be able to actually do the the full Ruby Crest Trail hike. Even though I wasn't able to do the hike, on this episode, we've got a great guest to come help us talk about it. And that's Ryan Cornea of the Fantastic Road Trip Ryan website. And Ryan joined me to talk about his through hike of the Ruby Crest Trail. He's got a great description of the hike on the Road Trip Ryan website, and we'll talk about that. Also, my dad is going to join us on the show, Rusty Pendry. And my dad, Rusty, is going to talk with me a little bit about the time we spent in the Ruby Valley, which I think is also worth hearing about. But before we do that, let's talk about where this hike is. Northeastern Nevada, actually much of Nevada, is Basin and Range Province land. There's a quite a big chunk of Western North America that it has this kind of geological feature. And what this means is it's an alternating series of narrow mountain ranges and vast dry basins. And this is, these are called Great Basin Ranges. Nevada, in fact, has 314 mountain ranges, more than any other state. It was once described as an army of caterpillars marching toward Mexico. And this covers the Sierra Nevada all the way to the Colorado Plateau from west to east. These series of smaller ranges are caused by subduction of the Farallon Plate under the North American Continental Plate. So it's a plate tectonics phenomenon that built these mountain ranges. And the Ruby Mountains are just one of these more than 300 mountain ranges in Nevada. The Ruby Mountain Wilderness where the hike is, was created in 1989. It's in the Humboldt-Toyabe National Forest. It's 90,000 acres and 90 miles long, and it has 10 peaks above 10,000 feet. Ruby Dome is the highest peak at 11,387 feet. So that's 10 peaks above about 3,050 meters, and Ruby Dome 
at more than 3,470 meters. There are also more than two dozen alpine lakes in the area, which is one of the highlights. It's called the Ruby Mountains because in early days of settlement by Europeans, they found garnets in these mountains. So they found these stones that had a, a ruby color. So early explorers named the area the Ruby Mountains. At the north end of the range is Lamoille Canyon, and this is a huge canyon carved by glaciers that's often referred to as Nevada's Yosemite. It has hanging valleys, towering peaks, and year-round snowfields in the area. And there's a large mule deer herd also. The 12-mile road that goes back into Lamoille Canyon, the road that I was unable to turn onto because of the fire, brings you pretty far back into the heart of the canyon. So even if you don't do this as a backpacking trip, you could see Lamoille Canyon. The town closest to this hike is Elko, Nevada. Elko is the county seat for Elko County, has about 18,000 people. It's along the route of what was called the California Trail, which was a route from towns along the Missouri River out to California. The economy is largely made up of gold mining. It's the capital of Nevada's gold belt, and that's true even today. There's a a really neat uh, museum there called the Northeastern Nevada Museum. Because I had so much extra time, because I wasn't able to do the hike, I went and saw that museum and enjoyed that. Had a lot of history and art related to the area. There's also the Western Folklife Center, which I also went to and spent some time talking to the, the person working there. And the Folklife Center is famous for annually holding a national cowboy poetry gathering that happens every January where they read cowboy poetry. The area also has a lot of people of Basque origin. And so every July, there's a national Basque festival. I actually went to a Basque restaurant while I was there. And of course, Elko has casinos. Let's talk now a bit about the Ruby Valley, because that's a place I was able to go during this trip. The Ruby Valley is east of the Ruby Mountains, and it's a large 60-mile basin. Historically, it was the winter home of the Shoshone native peoples. Today, the north end of the valley is cattle ranches, but the south end or sort of the southern middle part of the valley, is the Ruby Lake National Wildlife Refuge. The Ruby Lake National Wildlife Refuge was established in 1938. It has 37,632 acres, which is 15,229 hectares of land. It's at 6,000 feet in elevation, or 1,828 meters. The lake is 16 miles long, which is 26 kilometers, and three miles across, which is about five kilometers. Historically, it was a deep lake, and it was created by spring-fed marshes and shallow ponds. Essentially, it's water that's coming down from the Ruby Mountains, and a lot of it coming out is groundwater and forming this lake. It's a habitat for hundreds of birds and, and lots of mammals. There's a sandhill crane migration in March, and they advise taking GPS with you if you go in a boat in the marsh because you can actually get so lost that you might not be able to find your way out. There's also trout fishing there, and there's even a, a fish hatchery. 
At the southern end of the Ruby Valley is the Overland Pass. And this was part of the Hastings Cutoff, which is a western overland route that wagon trains used to get to the West Coast. In fact, the famous Donner Party that ultimately had to resort to cannibalism in the Sierra Nevada mountains to survive actually came through this area and went over the Overland Pass on September 21st, 1846. It was also for a time part of the Pony Express route. There's a Pony Express station that was there. And the Pony Express was a U.S. mail system that was set up to quickly deliver mail across the West. But it only lasted for a 16-month period from 1860 to 1861. It went from St. Joe, Missouri to Sacramento, California in 10 days. But it was pretty quickly killed by the invention of the telegraph and then later the railroad. Also in this area, there's Fort Ruby, which from 1862 to 1869 was a U.S. Army cavalry fort. It was set up to protect the mail route from Paiute raids. And again, that that was ended in 1869 once the railroad went through and there wasn't a need to protect this overland route. As I also mentioned, there's a fish hatchery uh, right on the edge of the Ruby Lake. It's called the Gallagher Fish Hatchery. And the fish hatchery was built in 1940 by Elko County with help from the state. And it's used to stock fish statewide throughout the streams and lakes of northern Nevada. It produces eggs for other hatcheries in the state as well. They produce 100,000 pounds annually of mostly about eight-inch long fish that are then spread around the state. And two million eggs per year as well. It's mostly rainbow trout, but also brown trout and brook trout and some cutthroat trout. And as you'll hear from my father in the interview with him, there's also experimental tiger trout hybrids that are made from a brown trout female and a brook trout male. Interestingly, there's also wild horses in the Ruby Valley, which my dad and stepbrother and I saw. There's something called the Cherry Spring Wild Horse Territory that's almost 24,000 acres in size, which is 9,712 hectares. This is an area in the southern portion of the Ruby Mountains where the horses are. It's administered by the Ruby Mountains Ranger District of the Humboldt-Toyabe National Forest. And the horses move up and down the range seasonally. They manage the herd to 58 horses. I'm not sure why that particular number, but... I guess that's the the size that they want to keep the herd at. Not that long ago, my dad and I talked about our trip to the Ruby Valley, and I thought you might enjoy hearing that conversation. So let's listen in. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. No problem. Thank you for having me. So how did you first hear about the Ruby Valley? Well, I first heard about the Ruby Mountains, really. A friend of mine had said, hey, let's go. It was fall, about three, four years ago, five years ago. And he said, let's go to the Ruby Mountains. And I said, fine. I'd never been there. Didn't know anything about it. So uh, we took off. We ended up just below Idaho. And we were in California, Nevada. But we never made it to the Ruby Mountains. I think... 
and you know, it's just because we didn't have, we, uh, you know, we're native Californians and we just didn't have it. We don't need a map. We, you know, we ended up, it was beautiful. It was really, I really enjoyed the trip, but I never saw the Ruby mountains or the Ruby Valley until you decided to, that you wanted to go and hike that um, area. So let me get this straight. You and your friend Ted, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you guys drive all the way out to northeastern Nevada and somehow you make a wrong turn and almost end up in Idaho. We were, yeah, we were in, we were in an Indian reservation right next to Idaho. But, you know, it was uh, it was nice. It, I, I, I love the trip. It was really good. I got to see some. Uh, I saw elk. I saw um, beautiful, beautiful sunsets. All the aspens that time of the year in October when you went or when we went. Yeah. You know, the aspens in, in Nevada. You know, you think it's all desert and rugged country, and, and it is, but there's some real beauty in in that in that uh, area. And 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 finally, getting to the Ruby Mountains, then I really saw a part of Nevada that I never knew existed, and, and that was beautiful. You know. And so you kept you really wanted to eventually make it there. Well, I no, not necessarily. Just that you came up with the idea independently. You know, without me, you're going to go to the Ruby Mountains. I go, oh, well, good. Now I'm going to know where they are, and now I'm going to find them. And Logan was, uh, you know, we went with Logan too, and he was, he was up for it. You know, so we went because you decided you wanted to hike it. And what did you expect to find there? Desert. I knew it was like a outcropping of mountains. I knew, I knew that, but I didn't know how big it was. That was almost a hundred miles long, and I mean, just in the middle of a fairly high desert, there's this gigantic mountain range, you know, that's really beautiful. And I never thought it would be like that. So it was a surprise and a nice surprise. And so the biggest part of what we were doing is really going to see uh, the Ruby Valley. It turned out as, you know, that I wasn't able to do the hike this time because of the weather and because of wildfires. But we we ultimately went to the Ruby Valley and that was something that, you and your friend Ted had been wanting to do as well, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I I just wanted to get through the mountains. Whether we probably would have gone to the Ruby Valley. I mean, we weren't planning to hike anywhere, and we had you know we had my camper on my truck, and we were we were just you know wherever we went was going to be fine. And so, for someone who's never seen the Ruby Valley, describe what that's like. Well, I can compare it to like. Uh, I used to f- commercial fish for salmon, and I can compare it like being out in the ocean. Far as you can see, it's all ocean. It's just totally unbelievable. You go, where's the end of this? And and the Ruby Mountains, or the Ruby Valley, actually, gave me the feeling that uh, it was just endless. You could look all the way down that valley and not see any end to it at all. And way, way, way down at the very end, I think there was a little peak of a mountain. But it, it was it looked like it was an endless beautiful place. And a big part of the Ruby Valley is the, is the Ruby Lake that's part of a national wildlife refuge. What was that like? Uh, well, the, the wildlife there was incredible. The fish, particularly the birds. I, I'm sure it's a, fly, a flyway for the birds during the spring or fall or whenever they do it. There were some birds there, but not a lot. But you could see where, yeah, this would be a good place to stop if you were a bird you know, and, and traveling in large numbers because I guess there was plenty of food there. And uh, it was uh, an incredible experience. I just, you, you know, you, you don't know what exists out there until you actually go out and see them. 
And what about the fishing out there? We did some fishing while we were there. What did you think of that? Well, it was somewhat frustrating because you can't use bait for starters. And uh, um, so that was like, okay, okay, use bait. And then also, um, it's it's not more it's not a lake really as much as it is a lot of different canals. The lake was I don't know. Did you see the? I never really saw a lake. Well, we were there in October, and so I think maybe by then the water is lower. But I think what it really is is a marsh, right? A pretty reedy marsh. Yeah, and that's what attracts the birds. You know, they can lay eggs there. They can. I'm sure they nest there too. Anyway, the fishing was. Well, it was kind of hard. First off, you couldn't use bait. Second off, because the water was so fresh and everything clean, there was a lot of green growth. So as soon as you cast it in and you start reeling back or lure or something, you'd always get hung up in the in the grass. Or how or always you'd be dragging grass and a fish will never hit it. So that was kind of frustrating. And plus the size of the fish there, like you see these, I mean, good sized trout, and they just got nothing to do with it. You know, they're they're just like and you see lots of them. I think what you need, I think for fishing, if you're into fishing, you need something that floats, you know, a lure that floats for a little bit, not a real big lure, just the one that floats so you can keep it off the, get, get it in grass caught up in it. But, you know, we still, everybody caught a fish, and you know, we eventually, you know, ate fish one night, so, but it took a while. And so just because I need to ask this question, I'm going to, who caught the biggest fish? Uh, you did with <laughs> with one of my lures, but you know, but but I'm glad you caught that fish because I had never ever seen a fish like that. You know, I thought it was a brown trout, and it turned out to be a tiger trout, which I'd never heard of until uh, you know it was a couple months later that I showed somebody the picture of you with the fish, and they said that was a that's not a brown trout, that's a tiger trout. So I got you know a new species of trout that I didn't know anything about. And it was, and it was a nice fish, you know, it was like a pound, beautiful fish. Surprised you, I bet. It did. Well, whenever I catch a fish, I'm very surprised because I don't usually <laughs> catch a fish. But this one, the tiger trout is an interesting fish. It's a hybrid between a brown trout female and a brook trout male. So I guess that's, there's a fish hatchery right there. So maybe there's an interesting mix between fish that are there and fish coming out of the hatchery. The interesting thing about that that thing is brown trout are not usually raised in hatcheries because they're they're predatory fish and I think they can uh, uh, they can feed on it regular trout rainbow or whatever so I I think the the brook trout are probably done there you know in the hatchery but I don't know if the brown trout are huh one of the other things that was cool that we saw was a herd of wild horses what did you think of seeing that uh, surprise you know but. Still, you got to remember where you are. You're out in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of, you know, so seeing horses that are wild surprised me at first. But I said, well, that, that makes sense. They got plenty of water. They probably got plenty of grass in the in, up in the mountains a little bit or, you know, in those valleys. Or <clears throat> So uh, it was enjoyable. And they looked really healthy. You know, they, they, they looked like they, were, they weren't hurting at all. They weren't, there's no bones showing on, the, on their sides. Uh, they were a healthy-looking uh, group of horses, herd, I should say. Yeah, one of the things that struck me is how much of an oasis this really was for wildlife, not just the trout and the birds, but I guess also for horses. And there were elk hunters there because we were there in October. And so there's a lot of elk and probably deer in the area. And it just seemed like a place that was really thriving and teeming with wildlife. 
For sure. Um, it'd be interesting to go back there in the spring and see it because the what we saw was mostly brown, looked like fall. Uh, things were coming to an end. Winter was coming on. But I, I'm sure spring there is, is unbelievable, probably with the amount of birds there and the two and the, all the different varieties. And that's been going on for centuries. You know, that that's been there forever. One of the other things we we came across was the remnants of Fort Ruby, which was an old army fort. And I didn't expect to see that at all. And then we came across these old buildings and weren't sure what they were and looked at the sign and saw that it was Fort Ruby. Uh, What did you think of that? Um, I guess the desolation back in the late 18, mid 1800s for anybody that was in the army, you know, that was a long way away from everything out pretty much out in the middle of the desert in a way, you know, but not, not desert, but out, you know, all around it is desert. And I guess, uh, according to what we read, they had, you know, the Indians were constantly attacking it, which you, you know, you can see why, <laughs> but, but, you know, it was, it, it was uh, interesting that somebody in the, I don't think people signed up to go out there. Okay. <laughs> that was not the plum, uh, job. No, that wasn't the plum job at all. And we stayed in South Ruby Campground, which is about a mile and a half south of the the park headquarters for the Ruby Lake Wildlife Refuge. What did you think of the campground there? Uh, perfect. We had a, a really nice view of the of the canals and all the uh, there's I guess a lot of roads out, out in that area. So we had a, a beautiful view through uh, of the valley and then the mountains on the other side of the valley. So. Um, that that was pretty. Uh, it was just a uh, yeah. I had no complaints about the campground. Would you go back? Would I go back? Yeah, I'd go back. But I, you know what? I would go back maybe in the spring, not in the summer. It'd be too hot. But in the spring and fall is when things are happening there. I'm sure. It's at about six thousand feet. It might be okay in the summer. I'm sure it would be hot, but it might be doable maybe early summer. The va- the valley floor is six thousand. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it would still be hot, but I think the campgrounds probably do fill up in the summer. Probably, they, they will. They, you know, we they were pretty full for the all the hunters coming in. There were, you know, a lot of a lot of hunters up there then. That's true. Nice thing about the hunters is that they had those little four wheel drive things, and they they leave the campground, and you never see them again until evening, you know, or after late afternoon. So you didn't hear like motors going all up and down this. You know, it was pretty uh, quiet there, I thought. One of the reasons you came out there was because I had uh, asked you to help me with this hiking trip I was going to do. I was going to drop my car off at one end, and then you were going to pick me up at the other end of the hike and drive me back. And this is not the first time you've done that. You've shuttled for me numerous times over the years. And I mean, first, I just want to say thanks. I really appreciate that you do that. It makes a lot of hikes possible for me that probably wouldn't otherwise be possible at least makes them a lot easier. But um, I guess I kind of have to ask, why do you do that? Well, I get out too. I mean, I get to see where, you, where you're going. Where you, and, you know, I, I, it's, it's good for me too. I'm usually, usually when I do pick you up or take you someplace, I'm staying overnight, you know, because it's just, I'm too far away from wherever. And uh, so I get to see some things too, you know, uh, especially uh, Mount Whitney, you know, yeah. I, I got I got to see a lot of things around that area that I wouldn't normally have seen. So I enjoyed I just I enjoyed being out and I enjoyed seeing new places. 
I think I've done. I think I'm done with Whitney. I think you are too. But yeah, I've seen probably. that two, two, two or three times, you know. But uh, but still, I would have never. I would have never seen it if I hadn't. If you hadn't needed a ride to wherever you were going to get your car or whatever. And I think uh, older parents like myself should realize that if their kids are into hiking or anything, it's a good chance for you to get out and see what's up with the area whatever area it is. Well, I do really, really appreciate it. It's, it's been fun for me. Uh, not only to, it's not only made it more convenient for me, but it's also been fun for me because we've been able to spend a lot of extra nights camping together during these trips too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you know, when we went to Ruby Mountains, we spent, you know, what, two nights, three days, something like that. I think so. And you know, it was pretty, it was pretty relaxed, pretty nice. I liked it. I mean, I, I mean, I know you probably missed the hike and, and enjoy that because you like the challenge of that. And I still would have done probably pretty much the same thing, but it changed the whole trip a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, I wasn't just picking you up this time. I was going there and meeting you and usually, usually you'd be, you know, hiking and I'd pick you up and we'd go home or whatever. But this time, you know, we spent two or three days together and that was fun. That was nice too. All right, dad. Thanks for being on the show. No problem. Enjoyed uh, being here. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Now let's turn to the Ruby Mountains themselves. And I want to talk about the animals that are in the Ruby Mountains because it's a pretty interesting story. First, there are mountain goats. And these are Rocky Mountain goats. They are not native to the Ruby Mountains. They were introduced in the 1960s. There was a small group of 12 goats that were introduced from Washington State. The herd grew and went through some ups and downs. And today is about 300 goats. The Rocky Mountain goat is a white, woolly, really interesting looking goat. They're about three feet tall. They're about 200 to 300 pounds, which is 90 to 136 kilograms. Both the males and the females have horns. And they're really amazing climbers on cliffs, like a lot of goats. They can climb 1,500 vertical feet in 20 minutes. So that's a pretty serious mountain climbing ability. They've been thriving in the Ruby Mountains since the 1960s. And because this area is isolated from other mountain ranges in Nevada, they've stayed in that area without crossing over into other areas. There's also Himalayan snowcock, which is a a bird native to Pakistan and Kashmir. And they were introduced to the Ruby Mountains in the 1960s and 1970s in a series of different introductions. This is a bird that's about 28 inches from tip to tail. So what is that? That's over a couple of feet, so maybe two-thirds of a meter. And they're about 14 inches tall, which is about a third of a meter. And they live on really steep and inaccessible terrain, so it may be pretty rare to sight the Himalayan snowcock. There's also native bighorn sheep in the area. But even though they're native, they at some point, no longer were in the Ruby Mountains, and they were reintroduced in the 1980s. And today, there's more than 100 of them. 
The bighorn sheep are about three to three and a half feet tall. They can be up to 315 pounds, which is about 143 kilograms. And that's for the rams. The females, the ewes are smaller. The rams have much larger horns. And what's really interesting about the bighorn sheep are these horns. They can be up to 20 pounds or more. They curl back and then down and then forward. And they create a really interesting circular shape. They actually have annual growth rings. So you can tell by uh, the different sections on the horns how old the male is. The females have much smaller horns that are more straight. There's also quite a bit of mule deer in the area. And as far as general features, I think as we've mentioned, there's a lot of peaks, kind of rocky, craggy peaks. There are some creeks and rivers and a couple of dozen lakes. So let's talk about the Ruby Crest Trail itself. I couldn't find a specific history of when the whole trail had been created, but I did find that it was deemed a national recreation trail in 1979. It has at least been around that long. So it's officially called the Ruby Crest National Recreation Trail. So what is a national recreation trail in the United States? That's a trail that gets that designation because they contribute to the health, conservation, and recreation goals of the United States. Most are hiking trails, but some are multi-use trails or even bike paths. This designation was created by the National Trail System Act in 1968, and there's different kinds of trails that are created under that act. One, such as the Ruby Crest Trail, is a national recreation trail. And so national recreation trails recognize exemplary trails of local and regional significance. There's also national scenic trails and national historic trails. But in any event, the Ruby Crest Trail has been a national recreation trail since 1979. Before we go any further, I wanted to tell you I have some good news for Trails Worth Hiking listeners. In the last episode, I mentioned my love of outdoor herbivore a brand of vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals, which I found after switching my diet to a plant-based diet. Now I'm happy to tell you that Outdoor Herbivore is offering a 10% uh, discount off your order to Trails Worth Hiking listeners. As I mentioned in the last episode, there are lots of reasons I love Outdoor Herbivore, and I think you will too. First, the food tastes really great and they use quality ingredients. But there are a few other reasons that I really like outdoor herbivore. One is that they have plenty of calories per serving, and a lot of backpacking meals out there don't. A lot of commercially made backpacking meals that you buy have maybe 350 calories per serving. And in most of the outdoor herbivore meals that I've purchased, it's often double that. So there are plenty of outdoor herbivore meals that are in the 600 plus calorie range per serving. Another thing I like about it is you can buy one or two person servings of any of the meals you buy. So you're not limited to only buying a two person. You're not limited to buying two servings at a time or even one serving at a time. You can choose whichever you like. Also, there's boil in the bag packaging so that you just pour the hot water you've boiled into the packaging and let it sit for 10 or 15 minutes and your dinner is ready. By the way, you don't need to be 
vegetarian to love outdoor herbivore. My son and I ate them for a week together on a trip we took over the summer, and he is not a vegetarian, and he loved the meals. I love the chickpea sesame zeti and the blackened quinoa. Kim at Outdoor Herbivore recommends, if you are someone who brings tortillas when you go backpacking, that you try the switchback burrito stuffer or the naked freckled burrito. My son Justin and I ate the naked freckled burrito with lots of tortillas and really enjoyed that. So to get your discount on Outdoor Herbivore, the discount code is TWH10P, so Trails Worth Hiking 10%. All the letters are capitalized, so capital TWH10P to get your 10% off on Outdoor Herbivore meals. So I know we're heading into the, the winter, but one thing you could do is you could order a few Outdoor Herbivore meals and give them a try uh, and see what you like before we head into the next spring and summer backpacking season. Or if you're a winter camper and you like to uh, do some snow camping, here's a chance to have a really hearty, healthy meal to take with you snow camping. All right, so Outdoor Herbivore, check them out, get 10% off. Again, that code is TWH10P. All right, to talk about hiking the trail itself, we're going to talk with Ryan Cornea, of the RoadTripRyan.com website and the Road Trip Ryan app. Really hope you enjoy this interview. Ryan put up a great description of this hike on his website, and you can, you can find it there with a lot of great detail. And I thought it would be really helpful to have him come on the show and, and walk us through his hike. Uh, in addition to doing that, at the outset of the interview, Ryan talks to us quite a bit about uh, his love for canyoneering and what that's like in southern Utah primarily. And to me, that was all something that was really new and, and really interesting to hear about. And so I hope you enjoy that as well. In any event, here is my interview with Ryan Cornea about the Ruby Crest Trail. Ryan Cornea of Road Trip Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Ryan, you are more than just a backpacker. Uh, you are the author and founder of the website Road Trip Ryan and the app of the same name. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, I started the website in 2006, and it uh, actually has been through a couple of different iterations. It uh, initially was Outdoor Zen. Uh, but has morphed into Road Trip Ryan with the, the goal to get people outdoors and see, experience some of the amazing scenery that we have in Utah and, and other areas. So you live in Salt Lake City. So are most of the uh, areas you profile on, on the site close to home? Most are close to home. Uh, Southern Utah is my passion. Um, Southern Utah from Salt Lake is typically about three to four hours away. So it's, it's a reasonable weekend trip. So most most of the uh, most of the trips are in southern Utah. And so for someone who's never been to southern Utah, what is that area like? You know, southern Utah is a very unique geology. It's um, called the Colorado Plateau, and the Colorado Plateau actually extends into um, a bulk of it's in southern Utah, and Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado, and it's made up of, of sandstone, which is very unique. So. Uh, the scenery tends to be sort of desert, sandstone, red rock, very unique in, in the United States and even in the world. 
What kind of trips do you profile on Road Trip Ryan? So I profile a lot of canyoneering. And when I when I first started the site, my focus was canyoneering. But as as uh, Robert Heinlein says, specialization is for insects. So uh, I branched out into hiking, backpacking, climbing, floating, caving, kind of everything everything that you can do on a weekend. Um, I try to profile on the site. One of the things I saw on the site was roadside attractions. What is that? Yeah, you know, especially now I have a, a three-year-old now. So my my life has changed from big adventures to, to smaller adventures. And there are a lot of things, ghost towns and, and dinosaur prints and a lot of amazing things that are just right next to the road. So I, I pro- profile those too for people that are looking for shorter adventures um, or a place to stop and stretch the legs as they pass through. How many different adventures have you profiled on your site? You know, we're getting it's getting up around a thousand, I think. That's incredible. How many years have you been doing this? Well, it started in 2006. And um, wow, definitely some years have, have been a lot and some years have been a, a, a bit less. But um, the outdoors is my passion. What kind of adventures do you profile on Road Trip, Ryan? So the info that I provide, I, I always provide a rating um, and, and a distance and a difficulty. And this is really subjective because one man's short jaunt is another man's all day hike. Um, and then I try to give give a description that's enough information so that people can enjoy the hike, but not so much to take away the adventure from it. Part of the fun is actually getting to explore these areas. So I don't want people just staring at the guidebook or the, the printout during their hike. I want them to be looking around and paying attention to the, the scenery. And then, of course, you got to have a map. So we've, uh, maps included with with all of the, the outings. And I noticed the maps are maps that you've put together yourself, right? Uh, correct. Yep. They're based on USGS topo maps. And then you've added, I guess, GPS waypoints for things that are worthwhile features. Exactly. And, and tracks to help keep people on the right path. And so a lot of what you're profiling on Rotor Brian is canyoneering or slot canyon hiking, stuff that's not your typical backpacking trip, at least for someone like me in, in California. Can you tell us a little bit about what that kind of adventure is like? Yeah, canyoneering, um, canyoneering is what we call it in, in the U.S. In other parts of the world, it's called canyoning. And canyoneering is, is really unique in Utah in that it's in these narrow sandstone canyons. And the canyons run the gamut. So, uh, for example, an easy canyon might be a hike down a narrow canyon with a couple of rappels. Um, but, but that can grow into all-day affairs with really hard, exposed climbing and a lot of obstacles and real real difficulties to, to get through. And that's part of my passion for canyoneering is that there's a lot of diversity. Um, and I'll, I'll give a, a couple of examples of, of canyons. Um, one of my my favorite canyons is called Shenanigans. And it's it's very, very narrow. And I'm I'm a fairly big guy. I'm I'm 6'2 and 185 pounds. And um, as you squeeze through shenanigans, there were there was a particular section of about a half hour where I couldn't turn my head um, because the canyon was so narrow. Wow! And so that's that's a uh, that's um that's an example. And then on the other side of that, there are other canyons where you might walk all day and only have one rappel towards the end, and and the rest of the day is just a pleasant hike in a narrow gorge. So um, canyoning really runs the gamut, and it's an amazing. The scenery is so amazing and so unique that it it really draws a lot of people in. How did you get into canyoneering? Is it because of being in Utah and just what you have there? Or was it something you sought out? You know, in um, the mid-1990s, I did a trip to southern Utah. I spent a week hiking on Cedar Mesa. 
and uh, which is now part of the Bears Ears National Monument. And I just absolutely fell in love with the area. And um, it was a transition time. I was just finishing college. So I took up rock climbing at that time and used those skills to move into the canyons. And then once I started being able to do the technical canyons with the rappelling and the ropes, um, it just really grew. Why did you decide to create the road trip Ryan site? You know, I was spending so much time out in, in this, what I thought was the most amazing scenery in the world that I really felt like I needed to share that with people. So I started the site as a way to help people get the information they needed to get out to these more remote, more unique places. And if somebody wanted to start canyoneering and they've never done it, canyoning, how would they go about doing that? You know, canyoneering is really growing right now. And I, I often, I always recommend that people best, if possible, I think people should get professional instruction. Um, if not, then they need to go with very experienced friends. Canyoneering is kind of unique in that it's a very, most of the time it's very straightforward, but if, because these are, these are canyons where water floods through them uh, periodically, oftentimes they change. And so a canyon that may be easy today, next week after a flash flood, it may be really difficult to find anchors to repel off of, or the canyon may be choked with logs or that type of thing. And so it's really important to get some background and some experience from either a professional or from a really experienced friend so that you can deal with these these uh, unexpected things that come up while, while in canyons. Uh, and, and I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, my, my favorite examples there is, you know, I've, I've had a partner get their shirt stuck while rappelling and be dangling off the ground 30 feet in the air. And that, that's something you don't expect, but you need to be able to deal with. And then uh, I was also in a canyon and, and came across a deer that was trapped between rappels. And that's a, another unexpected thing that you need to to be able to work through these problems when they come up. And it, it, it helps to have some experienced, have some experienced teaching for that. It seems like one of the, I mean, I guess from my perspective of someone who hasn't done this kind of uh, hiking or trekking, one of the things that I would be worried about is the possibility of flash floods. Is there a, is there a high season for doing this or how to, is it really just a matter of monitoring weather reports? Yeah. So in Southern Utah, part of what makes the geology and the scenery the way it is in Southern Utah is we get monsoonal rains in the summer. And so uh, in the summer, we have to be very careful, particularly in high summer. So um, a lot of canyoning is best done in the spring and the fall. In high summer, like in places like Zion National Park and places like that, um, people canyon in the summer, but you have to be really careful because even a 20 or 30 percent chance of rain can mean a major flash flood in a canyon. Um, So it's definitely we have to keep an eye on the weather. And I personally stay out of canyons if there's really any chance of rain. That makes sense. So if there, is there a trail or a route that everyone who really is into this really wants to do? Is there one that's sort of like, you know, I think of, for example, as a Sierra backpacker, everyone wants to do the John Muir Trail in California because that's kind of the iconic route through the Sierra Nevada. Is there a sort of iconic route that really attracts people or is there one that you have that's just a favorite that you would recommend? Yeah, you know, I'm not a California backpacker and I want to do the John Muir Trail. So um, <laughs> I, de- I definitely understand that. Uh, that's a tough question because of the diversity in Southern Utah, each, there are different areas that have very different features and very different types of canyons. So the one that I personally think is really rewarding and that I, I think is one to aspire to is a canyon called Death Hollow. And the canyon itself is not particularly difficult or technical, but the hike starts at 9,000 feet at the very top of this drainage. And it descends through the the conifers and down into the sandstone canyon and there are a few short drops that you can repel and 
And then it goes, it spends much of the rest of the trip in this sandstone gorge with just idyllic pools and, and small waterfalls and cascades. And, and the hike ends with when the drainage ends at the, the Escalante River. And so it's about a 25-mile hike, which um, because of the slowness of walking in, in the stream much of the time, most people take three to five days. And I think it's a really rewarding hike because you see this whole canyon from the very top of the drainage all the way down to the Escalante River. That sounds pretty cool. When yeah. are we going? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I appreciate you, you telling us about Road Trip Ryan and, and about the canyoneering in general. But today we're here to talk about the Ruby Crest Trail. And the Ruby Crest Trail, of course, is in, in northern, northeastern Nevada, I guess. That's, I guess, not that far from where you live, really, as, as far as getting there by car. Um, so how did you learn about the Ruby Mountains and, and the Ruby Crest Trail? You know, I have to admit, my wife, Diane, was a victim of uh, Facebook advertising. The, uh, the Nevada Tourist Board had a, an ad about the Ruby Mountains, not particularly about the Ruby Crest Trail, but about the Ruby Mountains in general. And so she said, hey, let's, let's look into the Ruby Mountains and see what's there. Uh, so we started looking at maps and looking at guidebooks and, and found the Ruby Crest Trail. So this, this has to be the first time I've ever heard of a, a really positive outcome from a Facebook ad. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> and so what once she saw that and you guys talked about what attracted you to deciding to do this hike? You know, uh I like things that are a little off the beaten path and and the Ruby Crest Trail is not nearly as popular as a lot of the trails um that we were looking at doing. Uh, we we had that, that particular summer we were looking at doing some trails in the Tetons Mountains as well and they were they were much busier. You had to get reservations for campsites. Um, and so the Ruby Mountains attracted us because it was a point to point, which is always really rewarding. Uh, we, we were going to take it at a leisurely pace. So we had three to four days, which seemed like a good fit for it. And also they allowed dogs. We had just gotten a dog, um, Absail McGee. And so we, we wanted to bring her along. So, so it seemed like a good fit all the way around. And what did you do to go about planning the hike? You know, uh, we looked a little bit on the, the internet and found a bit of information, but mostly we studied the, nap, studied the map. And after getting a, a sense of the trail and getting some ideas, I actually called the, the Ruby Mountains Ranger District, the National Forest Service there, to talk to them about current conditions, if they'd gotten any recent feedback, and to really find out about water supplies. Um, Nevada, that part of Nevada is, is fairly dry, and so water, water during the hike in particular, one long stretch, section of the ridge is, is uh, fairly difficult. and so it's good to get an idea of current conditions. And so you mentioned hiking with your dog. Is, does Abby McGee come along on most of your trips? Abby McGee comes on most of our trips. And we had her, um, we rescued her when she was a year old. And when we had had her two weeks, we took her canyoneering, uh, put her in a harness and repelled with her. And she loved it and has, has been a great companion. I have to say, I can't imagine my dog repelling. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> it takes a certain personality for sure. <laughs> what what kind of, what breed of dog is she? She's a German wire-haired pointer. And okay. uh, they're, they're just amazing, amazingly athletic dogs and, and really, really intelligent, really good dogs. Huh. Okay, so let's talk about logistics. What time of year is the best time of year to, to do the Ruby Crest Trail? You know, I would say sort of uh, early to mid-summer, June, July. Um, June, most of the time, you'll be able to find snow on the ridge, which makes water less of a concern. We actually went in the fall in sep uh, September, uh, Labor Day, and water was, was not existent on the ridge. So we had to carry a lot more water than you typically would if you happen to go earlier in the season. 
Now you can't really go in May because it is high elevation as, as high as almost 11,000 feet. So it doesn't melt out until, you know, late, late May, early to mid June, some years, depending on, on snowpack. And I can speak from experience that October is not always a great idea. I tried to go out there in October and there was snow then also. <laughs> yep. And so how long, so you said three to four days is a pretty good itinerary. What's the mileage on this hike? You know, it's about 35 to 37 miles. Um, there's one one big day, the ridge day, that, that really is 12 to 15 miles, and there's just no way around that because you need to get that distance to get between water sources. Um, so given the, the elevation changes each day, we felt that, that four days was a pretty pretty relaxed and pretty comfortable pace. How were the elevation changes? I mean, it seemed like in certain parts it's pretty much up and down, other parts a little bit more flat. Yeah, it's um you climb over a couple of passes and the the big day is is about 5000 feet of of gain over the day. So that's a pretty big wow. day. Yeah. yeah. I saw the elevation range was somewhere between I think it looked like it was 7200 ish to 10900 yeah. approximately. Yeah. Okay. And as far as gear needed, is there any particular specialized gear or is this pretty much your standard backpacking gear? Standard backpacking gear. Um, the, the two things that we did differently is, is uh, we brought more water carrying capacity. And then we also, uh, because of the big day, we wanted to go light. So we went, uh, we went pretty light. We went with a tarp tent and we went with a, a sleeping quilt instead of a sleeping bag to try to get the pack weight down as much as we could. It makes it makes my heart sing to hear you say those things because I'm <laughs> I am also a lightweight backpacker. Uh, so especially as I get older, it's much easier to carry less. Absolutely. And so you said for water capacity, that's really that. Well, I guess we'll get to that shortly. But there's a big day where you need a pretty long stretch of no. There's no actual water along this long stretch where you need to carry a significant amount of water. Yep. Okay. And how much you were you carrying for that stretch? Well. Um, Diane carried two quarts, and I had some concerns that we might end up either spending a, a lot of time on the ridge or we may actually have to spend the night. So I carried about six quarts. Wow, that's a lot. Also, keep in mind, we had a dog. So we had two people and a dog to keep hydrated. So, sure. um, yeah, I wanted to make sure we had plenty of water. You didn't make Abby McGee carry her own water? You know, Abby McGee was too busy running around to carry her own water. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, so if I were to hike this trail now, I'd probably go to your site and download your maps, but you couldn't do that because you didn't have them yet. So what did you do for navigation? Yeah, we just had the USGS topo maps and carried those. And so you came from Salt Lake City. How long of a trip was that? You know, it was about three or three and a half hours. So it wasn't too bad to leave work and drive out. We, uh, we camped in Lamoille Canyon and then uh, picked up the shuttle the next morning. Okay, so pretty easy driving. It's pretty flat getting there. <laughs> Very flat across western uh, Utah and eastern uh, Nevada, for sure. Probably doesn't get any flatter. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does not. <laughs> um, do anything along the way? You know, we didn't. It, it, uh, we had uh, four days to do it, so we, we wanted to spend most, as much of that time as we could in the, in the Ruby Mountains. Okay, great. And for those not coming from Salt Lake, it's about an eight-hour drive from San Francisco, about a four hour and also about a four hour drive from Reno. And it looks like um, from your post about this hike that you did the hike from south to north. Was there a particular reason for that? 
You know, most people seem to recommend that, and the Forest Service recommended that, mostly because the scenery does get better. Uh, the south end is lower elevation, so it's more sagebrush and, and spotty aspen groves, where the north side is just high mountain, high elevation, rugged, rocky, big lakes, uh, very beautiful. And how did you set up being able to do this trip? Obviously, it's a point to point. So you, you, you're going to start at one end. You're going to have to prob- assume leave your car at the other end. And how did you get from one to the other? Yeah. So I actually called um, several places, uh, sporting goods stores in Elko and, and asked their suggestion. And there's, there are a couple of people in town that do shuttles. And so we actually hired a shuttle and he met us at, I think it was 6.30 a.m. Uh, the, the morning we were ready to go in Lamoille Canyon. We left our car there and then he shuttled us around. And it, it was expensive. I think it was 200 or $250. But it was for us, it was absolutely worth it because it meant we got to spend that, that shuttle time actually hiking in the mountains rather than trying to shuttle cars around. Um, sure. So I, I, would, I would recommend the shuttle over trying to take two cars because it is a fairly long drive between the, the, the north and the south. How long of a drive time-wise was it, roughly? Uh, you know, I think it was at least an hour, maybe an hour and a half. The The last section of road is is kind of rough, so it's a bit slow. Okay. You said 200 to $250. Was that for you, both of you and the dog, or was that per yeah. person? Or? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, $50 for the humans and 200 for the dog. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that was for everybody. <laughs> okay, so you left your car at Lamoille Canyon Trailhead. Yep. And got the shuttle. And it looks like from what I've seen, it's uh, Highway 227 that takes you down there. And then you take Forest Road 660 that gets you up. I'm sorry, I'm reading that wrong. So from Elko to get to Lamoille Canyon to where you left your car, it's Highway 227 to Forest Road 660. And then it's about a 12 mile drive into the Lamoille Canyon trailhead. Yeah. Is that right? Okay. And you guys stayed, was it at Thompson Canyon Campground? We did. Yep. How was that? Uh, it was surprisingly quiet for a, a holiday weekend. We we felt lucky that we were able to get a, a reservation. I, I think uh, the camping the camping karma was on our side, and we, we were able to stay there. And I think you can reserve that through Reserve America, which is typical for those kinds of campgrounds. Yep. Did you need a permit for this hike? No, and that that's another perk for us. It's nice to not have to deal with permits or try to get camping reserve camping sites along the hike. So it's it's just show up and, and do it. So for someone who's never been to this part of Nevada, never seen the Ruby Mountains, can you describe a little bit of what this area looks like? Yeah, so uh, that that section of Nevada is really interesting because it's um, flat land interspersed with numerous mountain ranges. And the Ruby Mountains are one of the larger ranges, but because of the volcanic activity in, in Nevada, there are just mountain ranges everywhere. And so the rubies just jut up out of the, the flat land of, of that part of Nevada. And they, they start fairly low and they go through the, the transition from sagebrush to aspens and then more up into the, the craggy, rocky peaks. But uh, even in the, the kind of the moderate elevation zones, they're, they're not heavily forested. It's a very open, open views with lots of rocks lots of space and just sort of patches of trees. Does it get above, does the trail get above treeline? It does, yeah. The The biggest day is all above treeline, um, going over peaks at the very top of the range. So one of the interesting things I read about this area is there are a couple of non-native species that have been introduced over the years. One of them is a Himalayan snowcock, which is a, a kind of pheasant-like bird, I think. 
and the other is a, a mountain goat, uh, both of which aren't native to the area. You didn't happen to see either of those, did you? You know, we didn't. We uh, we spent four days, and I don't think we saw any any wildlife. A, f- a few birds, but no no other wildlife. Unfortunately, okay. we were too late in the season for the wildflowers. I've I've heard they're quite good, but we were very late in the season for that. And what is how does the trail itself go? I mean, a lot of some trails follow ridgelines. Some trails are going straight up over passes. You know, sort of difficulty and, and kind of how they design the trail. Anything to think about there? <clears throat> you know, it's it's a really. I thought the trail had a very nice rhythm to it. The first day, you sort of amble along on the uh, the west side of the the range at fairly low elevation, and it's sort of it's just sagebrush and open, and then you climb over a pass. And that, that first pass is about 2,600 feet of gain. So it's it's kind of a good introduction and a good warm-up. But once you get to the top of that pass, you see the the, the northern part of the range and the, the rugged, rocky nature of it. And, and the trail drops down to Overland Lake, which is a nice a nice place to stay. And then the, the big day is all on the ridge above treeline at the very top. So you can see both to the east and the west of the range. And it just, it feels like you're in this, this ocean of flat land and very, very dramatic. And then towards the end, the, the scenery is, is really good towards the end as well. Um, but it becomes a little more, uh, I won't say crowded, but more more visited. So there tends to be more more people the last day of the trip. At the, and there are also more lakes. So there's more fishing and, and more more scenery that way. Okay. So let's go through the itinerary a little bit in a little bit of detail. The first day you start at Harrison Pass, which is at about 7,247 feet, which is 2,209 meters. How does, so what's the itinerary for that first day look, look like? Well, the itinerary for us was to try to talk the shuttle driver into driving as far up the Jeep road as he possibly could <laughs> so he didn't have to walk it. <laughs> and he was, he, was a, he was a good sport. <laughs> How far in does the Jeep road go? Uh, I think he probably made it about three miles. Um, but the, the good thing was the, most of the elevation is in the, the first couple of miles. So uh, from where we started, he was able to drop us off. We, we got a flat start and didn't have to do as much elevation gain. Um, and then the, the Jeep road slowly deteriorates into a single track that, that curves around and, and heads north towards the big mountains and the, the main part of the range. So I hope you gave him a pretty good tip. We did. Yeah, we were, we were very <laughs> thankful. <laughs> well, well, I think, well, if you start at the end, you don't get your driver to take you all the way up three miles up the road. It's about a 10 mile day to get to the uh, South Fork of Smith Creek, which is about an 1800 foot gain and 1900 foot loss overall doing that day. And um, how was the, the camping on that first day? What did you find for a campsite? So when we got to the South Fork, we found a lot of cows. And so we, <laughs> we, um, we elected to continue to the Middle Fork of Smith Creek and, and camp there. And that was a mistake on our part. The Middle Fork was great in the sense that there were no cows and it was very quiet. But it was impossible to find even a flat spot big enough for a two-person tarp. <laughs> we, um, we really struggled to find a space big enough we could, we could sleep on a flat spot. Uh, so in retrospect, I would definitely stay at the South Fork. It's, okay. it's, the South Fork's big enough that there are lots of flat areas and, and lots of neat places to, to camp. Okay, there's a good tip. All right, so you've got that first day of 10 miles, about 16 kilometers or a little less if you tip your driver well. <laughs> and then the second day, it looks like what you did was went from, from that campsite to Overland Lake which is about 
five and a half or 5.75 miles potentially, I guess, from the South Fork. So maybe a little less from where you camped. And that's about nine and a quarter kilometers. What was that day like? You know, that was a, a fun day. You, you leave the sagebrush rolling hills and climb up to the pass where you really feel like you're entering the mountains. And at the pass, you're, you're looking down into Overland Lake and it's just craggy and rocky and, 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 and really a pretty, pretty spot. Um, Overland Lake can be approached from a trail on the east side of the range as well. So we saw a number of tents at Overland, but we didn't see any people. So I don't know. Uh, they must have been out hiking during the day. And we actually spent um, quite a bit of time at Overland just having lunch and, and really enjoying Overland. And then we, um, from Overland to to the next, the day after Overland is the big day. So we, we tried to jumpstart that a little bit. So we went a little bit past Overland to, to camp so that the next day would be a, a little shorter. Oh, that's a good tip. So you basically did a dry camp that night. You loaded up on water and went a little bit further? Well, uh, even better. We we went a little bit further and found a small pond that we could filter water from. So oh, we, perfect. We, we camped a ways away from the pond, but we had easy access to water. How much further do you think that was? I think it was maybe about a mile. So not okay. terribly far, but it also gave us that whole uh, sort of valley that we were in just felt like we had it all to ourselves. We didn't see or hear anybody over there, where if we had camped at Overland, there were obviously a, a number of campers there. So that day, if you go from Smith Creek to Overland, it's about a 2,600-foot gain and about a 1,000-foot loss. So pretty significant gain. And I guess that's that pass before Overland that really gives you the, the most of that uphill? Yep, yep. Okay. And that's about an 800-meter gain and 300-meter loss. Okay, and then so day three is the big day. Can you tell us about that day? Oh, it's the big day. <laughs> and I should have mentioned this somewhere earlier on in the, in the, in the, the discussion here, but we had found out my wife was pregnant. Um, she was, was, about... I hope you didn't find that out in the middle of the hike. Somehow. <laughs> we, we didn't, we, we actually knew ahead of time, but she was, she was 10 weeks pregnant and, uh, she was kind of right at the stage where some women get, uh, the bad morning sickness. And so we, ah. that was the other reason when we, when we looked at doing this long day, I thought, boy, I need to make sure that I've got enough water capacity that if, if something happens and we need to camp up there, we've got plenty of water. So we uh, we got up early and from our campsite, skies were blue. Uh, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful fall morning. Uh, there's one, one spring, one final spring uh, just past where we had camped. So we, we filled up all of our water, um, filled our bellies as well. And then the, the trail, so at this point you're on the the east side of the range and the trail contours and climbs up to to the ridge and and this is the big this is the big day so so we're excited and we we get up to the ridge pretty early probably 8 or 8:30 in the morning and as soon as we get to the ridge all we see to the west are black clouds that's not good that's not good because from from the top of the ridge to to really the next uh area of trees and water and, and safety is is it's a long day and so we we kind of stand there for a minute. We we talk back and forth, and we say, "Well, it's not thunder and lightning. It's it doesn't look like thunder and lightning. It's just dark clouds and storm, but no thunder and lightning." So so we decided to continue. And the day is amazing because from the the top of the ridge, you just continue on this ridge with with the uh, with peaks between you and and North Furlong, and and so it's just kind of peak after peak after peak. Uh, it's a lot of elevation and it's, it's very tiring, but it's also just really stunning scenery. It's all above treeline. 
big views in all directions. And we, so once we got to the ridge, we started north and we, we got to the top of the first small peak uh, and took a couple of pictures and we're really, really excited about the day and it started snowing on us. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Snow on Labor Day up there. Um, so we, we, we paused and talked it over and decided, well, you know, we're, we'll see, see, see how it goes. And it was one of those amazing days you have backpacking where as we headed north, the skies to the north just became clearer and clearer and clearer as the as the storm moved across us. And so uh, by midday, when we hit Wines Peak, which is is kind of the north end of the ridge, it was it was clear and beautiful and just one of those bluebird amazing backpacking days. Um, so we we actually took Wines Peak. The trail doesn't go to the top of Wines, but it gets pretty close. So we took the 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 short side trip to to tag Wines Peak while we were there, uh, and then we dropped down off the ridge. And when you drop down off the ridge. If you really need water, there's a a, a lake, a uh, furlong lake, that's about 20 minutes or so of a side trip one way to get water. Uh, we actually I had carried so much that we had plenty, so we decided to continue on. And so we actually continued on to Favre Lake, which is a, a stunning lake, um, just in an amazing setting. And, and by that point, you're to the north end of the range where there are more there's more visitation. So we started seeing more more day hikers and more backpackers that had come in from the north, um, but the the ridge hike from Overland to, to to North Furlong Junction is just absolutely stunning. And you know, we we felt like we we had the whole range to ourselves because we didn't see anybody the, the whole day. It was just really an amazing day. Yeah. So you had this is right smack dab in the middle, right? So you've got all these people that came in from the side to to uh, Overland. You've got maybe people at the end of the hike that come up from Lamoille, but you've got this part of it all to yourself. Yeah, there's no easy way to get to this part. So it's um, it's very remote and very nice. Was Wines Peak pretty easy to hike up? And it's, it's 10,863 feet, which is about 3,310 meters or so. Um, but you're already pretty high when you get to it, I assume. You are, yeah. And it's just a, a short scramble. It, it's not much elevation to get there. So it was definitely worth worth visiting. Okay. And so if you go from Overland to Favre, it looks like it's about 15 miles. It seems like you guys started a little past Overland, so maybe it was a little bit shorter than that, but a pretty significant day, yep. most, of which, most of which without any ability to resupply water. Yeah, and, and most of it at high elevation. So if you're not used to elevation, that, that could be a very tough day. It's a lot, lot different hiking at 10,000 feet than, than 7,000 feet. And how was the camping at Favre? Uh, Favre was the camping was very good. Uh, we were there on Labor Day weekend, so it was quite busy. But even with the the increased visitation, we we felt like we still had a really nice campsite. And um, all along the trail, and I, sh- I should have mentioned this earlier, but one of the things that's amazing about the Ruby Mountains is the stars are just incredible. Uh, there's no light pollution really around, so uh, I remember the stars at, at Favre Lake just being really incredible. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it is really out there. There's not a lot around. Elko is not that big of a city. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and most of the trail is on the, uh, yeah, it's just in an area where you can't see light. So it's it's really nice stars. So tell me about day four, finishing up the hike. Yeah, day four, um, unfortunately, because of the way, because of the big day in the middle, there's not a, a way to make the days equitable. So So day four for us was a very casual, easy day. Um, from Favre, we we climbed up past Liberty Lake, which is a really beautiful lake, and then climbed over a, a small pass. And Lamoille Canyon is just absolutely stunning, granite walled. It's a, a wide glaciated valley, and and so from Liberty, from the pass above Liberty Lake, you descend down 
um, into Lamoille's Canyon and back to the trailhead. And it's, it's a very easy day, but, but very stunning. And if you were to have a layover day somewhere in there or to spend time off, I guess at Overland Lake, you had extra time. Is that really the spot where you're going to have extra time in the middle of this hike? Yeah, Overland's nice uh, and would be a great place to spend some extra time. I think Farve Lake would also be a nice place, particularly if you're a peak bagger. There are a number of peaks around there. Uh, we we didn't feel like we had time to to bag any peaks, but it would be a great place to to spend an extra day. There's also a small lake uh, south of Farve Lake called Castle Lake that we didn't have time to visit that I think would be quite pretty. So the last day is basically a half day. You get back to the car before lunch, probably. Uh, exactly. Yeah, I think we got back yeah. about lunch, packed our things, and and was were able to get back to Salt Lake not too late uh, on that evening. Awesome. So, so what did you love most about this trip? You know, it's, um, I like that it's lightly traveled. I, I like that so much of it is above treeline. It's just really, really fun to be above treeline that long. The, the scenery is amazing. The fact that the Ruby Mountains kind of jut out of, of the flatlands makes for just really big views and, and really nice, really nice scenery. Is there a particular memory from the trip that sticks out for you? Yeah, there are a couple. The The campsite uh, that we had just past Overland, um, as I mentioned earlier, it just felt like we had the whole mountain range to ourselves. The stars were amazing there. It was quiet. Uh, it was a, a peaceful, windless night. And, and so that was a really nice memory. And then um, I always chuckle when we got to, to Favre Lake, we were all pretty worn out from the big day on the ridge. And and uh, Abby McGee was asleep in the tent. And so I, I took a piece of pe- pepperoni and, and dangled it in front of her nose. And, and seeing her eyes open wide as she chomped down this pepperoni is is uh, <laughs> is a good memory as well. <laughs> yeah, there's probably not a dog in the world that wouldn't have done that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> was there anything that happened during this trip that you didn't expect? I guess you mentioned the snow. The that was probably something. The snow was definitely the thing we didn't expect. And uh, I had taken a 32-degree quilt. And uh, I know that uh, two of the nights, the temperatures were in the high 20s. And so it was a little colder than we had expected. But with uh, the 32 degree quilt and uh, a set of long johns, I was very comfortable. Well, you had your dog and your wife to snuggle with. That's true. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything you would have done differently after having done this trip? Yeah, as, as I mentioned before, I wouldn't have I would have camped at the South Fork the first day. I think that would have, have been a better campsite. And then I think I probably would build in a, a a layover day at Favre so that I could bag some of the peaks around Favre because they're just so dramatic. It would be a great place to to visit some peaks. As you think back on this trip, was why was it special to you? You know, a, a lot of reasons, but I think the things that, that really stand out to me was um, my, my wife was pregnant, as I mentioned. She was about 10 weeks along. And, and we weren't sure how it was going to go because this was her first child and she didn't know how she was going to feel. And, and it went just amazing. She felt great and she had a good time. And, and so she started saying, well, you know, maybe we should call our daughter Ruby. And, um, as by the end of the trip, I was convinced if we were going to have a girl, we were going to call Ruby. So we actually named our daughter Ruby Sage, um, after that trip, which is, makes it really special. And, and Ruby's three now and, and often asks, are we going to go to the Ruby mountain someday? And, and I look forward to bringing her back and, and revisiting this hike with her again someday. That is amazing. That is, in all sincerity, a really touching story. That's fantastic. <laughs> and she will always have that. And you guys will always have that. And that's, that's great. Yeah, it was, it was an amazing trip and one I would recommend. Though it, it does require a fair amount of fitness. So keep that in mind. 
Sure. Well, Ryan, thanks for telling us about the trip. Um, one of the things that um, I like to do when I interview somebody on the show is to, um, I have a couple, a few bonus questions just to get a little bit of um, something from their hiking experience outside of the particular trip we've been talking about. You game for that? Sure. Okay. So what is the best backpacking, hiking, or road tripping advice you've gotten? You know, I have an old friend that used to tell me, never wait for perfect weather. If you wait for perfect conditions, you won't do much. So uh, now that, that advice does not apply to canyoning and thunderstorms. But as far as hiking, if it's a little bit rainy or a little bit snowy, I go because it's better to go and, and have the trip and enjoy the trip than to, to not do the trip and have the weather be better than you expected. That's good advice. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done going hiking or backpacking? <laughs> you know, not uh, not long before we did the Ruby Crest Trail, we did a, a four-day trip in the, the Uintas, a backpacking trip in the Uintas. And in, in the haste, it was the first trip we had done with, with Abseil McGee. And so in the haste of packing in the morning, I had taken our, our primary food bag and left it in the car. And so we were about five miles into the day when we stopped for lunch and realized we didn't have our primary food bag. So as somebody who prides himself on being pretty organized, that was a really dumb thing. And we, uh, we sort of kicked around options and do we just camp here? And I run back and get the food bag as my punishment and come back. And in, in the end, we just decided to do the whole trip in, in three days and eat Snickers for lunch and <laughs> all the candy and treats for dinner that we had and, and make it work. But that is incredible. I love your gumption. I love the fact that what you guys decided to do was to keep going and just <laughs> yeah. eat Snickers bars. <laughs> well, that, that goes back to the never wait for perfect conditions, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, what's the most unexpected thing that's ever happened to you while backpacking or trekking or road tripping? Yeah. So I was in uh, Southern Utah at a place called Robber's Roost, which is this very remote part of the desert. We were doing some canyoneering and, and we'd finished the day. And so we were, we were driving back and we're on this really desolate two track road in the middle of nowhere. And we see a small car parked with all the doors open and gosh, what's going on. So we, we pull up and we stop and we get out and <laughs> I still can't believe this. And I wish I would have video, videotaped it, but it was a couple with a dog and two emus. And they, these were pet emus that they put in the car and took for rides. And they had, they had stopped to let the emus out to stretch their legs and they couldn't catch them to get them back in the car. I'm just trying to imagine emus trying to stretch their legs and then people chasing them around the car in circles or something like. Unbelievable. I really wish I would have videoed that moment because it, it was classic and I was just so awestruck by the sight that I didn't even think to get a picture. But it, it was the strangest thing I've ever seen in the desert. <laughs> How big is an emu compared to a car? Are they big? Are they too big to get into a car? Well, so these were two two little ones and apparently the, oh. the people raised them. And so they said when they were small enough, which they were still bigger than a large dog, but when they were small enough, they would take them with them on on, you know, on road trips and stuff. And then when they got too big, they had to stay home but it was quite a sight. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. Road Trip Ryan, Ryan Cornea, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Ryan Cornea of roadtripryan.com for coming on the show. I hope you'll check out roadtripryan.com and uh, like me, start dreaming about potential trips to the canyons of southern Utah. And that's going to do it for 
our walk along the Ruby Crest Trail in Nevada. And so I hope that Ryan and I have inspired you to get out there and hike the Ruby Crest Trail. Keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, please reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we're going to describe a trail that is our longest trail yet covered on this show. It goes for over 300 miles along the shore of the largest body of fresh water in the world. But this is no easy or boring lakeshore stroll. This is a multi-week adventure with a surprising amount of up and down, most of it through deeply forested remote wilderness. But the hike is worth the effort. Every mile has a view over the giant lake alongside the trail or of a waterfall. On the next monthly episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Superior Hiking Trail along Lake Superior in Minnesota. And that's going to do it for today. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.